You can all hear me? Good, good, good. <clears throat> we had some teething problems this morning, but that was almost certainly down to me. My wife will tell you I'm a very clumsy person. Things break around me, so I have no doubt it was, uh, it was down to me. So hopefully we'll be okay this morning. <clears throat> First of all, it's great to be back and see you all here. We, as you know, uh, most of you know, my wife and I managed to get back to England uh, in August. We hadn't been able to get back for almost two years, so it was nice to catch up with our families, see our parents, etc. So we had a great time. So um, great to be back, and uh, it's a real privilege this morning. Peter's asked me if I would preach this morning, and uh, the next in our series, we've been going through Romans chapter 8. And so the passage we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 8 and verses 5 through 11. So I'd like to read that, if I may. Romans 8, starting at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Shall we pray? Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord. We're found in your house studying your word. And we ask, Lord, as always, that your Holy Spirit will be present amongst us now, Lord, to open our understanding that each one of us, Lord, could draw closer to you through your word. In your precious name, amen. So Paul here is writing to the church in Rome. And there are a couple of differences about Paul's letter to the church at Rome from letters that Paul wrote to other churches that we have in the Bible. You see, the two differences are that Paul had not visited Rome, as far as we're aware, prior to this. And we certainly know that Paul did not found this church at Rome. All of the other letters were written to churches that Paul had founded, to check on their progress, to deal with issues that he'd heard about. But this letter, he's writing to the church at Rome, he didn't found this church There's no real evidence as to who exactly did found it. There's a tradition it was Peter, but but the evidence is unclear. But whatever, Paul was writing here 
to a city he'd not been to and to a church that he'd not founded. So he's really writing with a clean sheet of paper, with an open mind. He'd heard about them, he'd heard about their progress. And it was interesting because he's writing this letter, he's addressing it not to Jews, but to Gentiles. He makes that very clear in chapter 1 of Romans and verse 13, when he said, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I had planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had amongst other Gentiles. So he's writing primarily to Gentiles. These are not Jews. So in a sense, Paul is writing to people who are not coming to listen to him or listening to his teaching, coming from a position of a theological and dogmatic objection to the central core of Peter's message, which is that Christ was the Messiah. Because as we know, when we read about Paul's journeys and his letters and the difficulties he engaged with as he was preaching, he was always running up against opposition from the Jews who did not accept that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore what Paul was teaching was heresy. Here, he doesn't have that backdrop. He's writing to Gentiles in a Christian church in Rome. The other aspect about this is that this was written probably in around AD 56, and it was 10 years or so before the great fire of Rome that destroyed a large part of the city, and for which the Emperor Nero falsely blamed Christians, triggering persecution of Christians. It's before that has happened. And the Roman Empire at that time was an incredibly strong empire, one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. But it was, as far as religious belief is concerned, the Roman Empire was polytheistic. So they had no one single god. They had multiple gods. In fact, their position was, each time they conquered a country and brought it into the Roman Empire, they really didn't care who you worshipped. You could worship whatever gods you wanted to worship. The only time they would, have an, they would have an issue is if your particular religious belief caused you to act in a way that threatened the security of the Roman Empire, in which case you would be punished very quickly and very severely. Other than that, you could have as many gods as you liked and believe what you liked. So in a sense then, that's very fertile ground for Paul as he writes this letter because people's minds are open. They're not coming from an orthodox Jewish perspective which rejects Christ as the Messiah. They're coming from a background where really, as far as religious belief is concerned, it's live and let live. You can have whatever gods you want. And so what Paul does in the book of Romans, in the first five chapters of the book of Romans, he sets out a really clear, concise summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he explains it so there's no doubts, no misunderstanding. He sets it all out. He says, this is what we believe. Then the tone changes a little bit as we get into chapters 6, 7, and 8. And Paul says, I've got something important, though, that I need to tell you. Because, of course, if you live in a society where the religious beliefs are that we have all kinds of gods and everybody really does whatever they feel like, then, yes, there's a freedom there, but it means that there's no constraint, really, on the way in which people live their lives or the way in which they interact. Because, you know, you might do things one day that 
one particular God doesn't like, but all the other gods are happy with. So Paul really is writing them to address this issue. And so I want to pull, I said briefly, and I, I will try, pull three things out of this, out of Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. Three things that I think we should focus on based on what Paul is writing to the church in Rome. The first is this. Paul is saying to the church in Rome, once you get into chapter 6, 7, and certainly chapter 8, he's saying, now look, you need to understand, Christianity means responsibility. There is now, if you are a Christian, you now have a responsibility before God to live your life in a way that pleases God. And to not live your life in a way that displeases God. You are, as a Christian, ambassadors for the gospel of Christ. People are going to look at you, watch how you act, look at how you deal with people, and they're going to make judgments about the gospel and about Christianity based on what they see you doing. And if the world in which you live is a world where people are are self-interested, people are after material things, where there's hate, there's division, there's arguments, there's malice, there's envy, you have got to, effectively, Paul is saying here to the church at Rome, you've got to step out of that crowd. You now have to step out of that crowd and you have to be different. You have to have a value system that is different to the value system of the people around you. And so that's, a, that's an important new step. If you're living in a, in a society where people say, worship who you like, do whatever you want, Paul is saying, no. As a Christian, you have a responsibility to be different, to act differently. And that message that he was giving to the church at Rome is as relevant to us today in the world in which we live than it has ever been. We live in a world with Instagram influencers who have millions of followers and they will in, they're called influences. Why? Because they influence people. Because people will look at the images they post and because somebody is a celebrity, they will make decisions, they will make choices based on what that person says or does. We live in a world we all know where for some reason in recent years people are not slow to anger, people are quick to anger, people are quick to fall out. There is division, there is hate out there in this world in which we live. And let's bring it down to a really base level. There is rudeness out there. People are often rude. My wife yesterday went to have her nails done in a nail salon. She couldn't believe just listening as she was having her nails done. People were coming in and were just so rude to the ladies who were doing the work. Just rude and unpleasant. Not just one person, multiple people. That's the world in which we're living. And Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you have to step out from the crowd and you have to live your life in a different way. And he says four things to substantiate this. He says, because we have, within each one of us, he said, we have a sinful nature and we have a spiritual nature. We have a sinful nature because we are born into sin. The Bible is clear about that. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we have a sinful nature that we are born with. 
But Paul says, when you accept Christ as your Savior, you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. And so you are supposed, we are supposed, I am supposed to leave a little bit of the Holy Spirit on every person that we interact with, even the people who cut us off when we're in the car. And Paul says, we have to make sure that we allow that spiritual nature to flourish and to inform our lives and inform our decision-making. The second thing Paul says about it is that these two natures, the spiritual nature and the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other. He writes this very clearly in his letter to the church at Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. So, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not grant the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. So Paul is saying we have these dual impulses, these dual natures. We have a spiritual nature. We have a sinful nature. And he says, and the two of them are fighting with each other. They're in conflict with each other every day. The sinful nature has desires that are contrary to what the spiritual nature wants. The spiritual nature has desires that are contrary to what the sinful nature wants. The third thing Paul says is that these two sinful, these two natures within us lead to very different consequences depending on which one we allow to be the dominant force. He says that the sinful nature if we allow that unchecked, will lead us to death. He says the spiritual nature, on the other hand, if that is the dominant force, that will lead us to life and peace. So you have two diametrically opposed forces or impulses or natures inside every one of us this morning who is a Christian. A sinful nature pulling us this way and a spiritual nature pushing us that way. And Paul says, we as Christians must strive to be controlled by the spiritual nature, not by the sinful nature. So he's saying to these Christians in Rome, and he's saying to us this morning, as a Christian, you have a responsibility to step out of that crowd and live your life according to a different value system based on what pleases God. He says we have two natures, a sinful nature, a spiritual nature. Secondly, they're in conflict with each other. Thirdly, they lead to very different outcomes and consequences. And lastly, as Christians, we must strive to be controlled by the Spirit. That's the first thing that Paul is saying. The second thing that Paul says, so the first thing he said to sum up is, every one of us this morning as Christians need to fight every day to make sure that we take decisions that are prompted by our spiritual nature, not by our sinful nature. That's the first thing that Paul says. 
The second thing that Paul says is, it's not easy. I mean, I wish I could say it was. But Paul says, it's not easy. You see, you can't win this battle once, and that's it for the rest of your life. It's a battle that we have to win every minute of every day. I heard it described once as like having two dogs, a good dog and a bad dog. And if you feed the good dog, the good dog will get stronger. And if you don't feed the bad dog, the bad dog shrivels away. And so it becomes progressively easier for the good dog to win. But conversely, if you feed the bad dog, then the bad dog gets stronger. And the good dog starts to shrivel away. And it's the same with us. If we continually indulge the sinful nature, it makes it harder for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to prompt us, to guide us, to lead us, to bless us, to give us discernment. Because we're clogged up with all the filth of the world. So Paul is saying, I'm not saying it's easy. And he warns us. I mean, I'm sure there are people here this morning. I relate to this. I'm sure there are people here this morning will think of times in our lives when we have slipped up in spiritual terms, when we've done something that we shouldn't have done. And sometimes we can beat ourselves up about that and it can stay with us for a long time. Well, the thing is, Paul is saying, it happens to me. And anybody who who has suffered from that or feels that should read chapter 7 of Romans when you've got some time. Chapter 7, because it's the most raw account of that struggle between good and bad within each one of us. I'll just read a couple of verses from chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. This is Paul. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will resolve me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the nature, to the law of sin. So that's Paul writing about the very real struggle he had to live according to his own words. So it stands to reason if he had a problem with this, then so will we. So he's saying, don't be under any illusion. He's saying, firstly, come out from the crowd. Live your life in a way which allows the law of the spirit to govern the way you act. Strive to keep the law of sinful nature down. Secondly, he says, it's not easy. It's a fight. It's a battle. The third thing, how do we do it? How do we, on a daily basis, 
win this war? How do we, on a daily basis, ensure as far as we can that the spiritual nature in our mind is the dominant one? (coughs) That that is the one that is making the correct decisions and we're not being led astray by our sinful nature. Well, the first thing is we have to recognize that there's a problem. If we don't recognize there's a problem, when we, we, we can't even begin to think about how to solve a problem because we don't think there is a problem. Paul writes elsewhere in the Bible about this fight, about this battle. He says we need to train hard. He says we need to fight like a good soldier. He speaks about putting on the armor of Christ. But too many of us will drift through not realizing there is a problem. Not realizing that everything we do and say, the way we interact with people, everything we do, we are, that is, that that should be a testimony and we should be ambassadors to the gospel of Christ. That affects everything we do in every aspect of our lives. My wife and daughter back there will tell you that I repeat old jokes all the time. And I am of the school that thinks if it's a joke's funny, it doesn't mean you can't use it another 52 times. This gives me an opportunity to run one of my favorite ones, which you've all heard before, but guess what? I don't care. (laughs) About the man who was killed at the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, He wasn't a soldier. He was camping in the field next door, and he wandered over to complain about the noise. But this is the thing that can happen. If you wander absent-mindedly into a battle, you're going to get hurt. If you don't recognize that there is an issue, then you won't spend any time trying to resolve that issue. You know, on a a serious note, I'm sure many here in this church this morning have been touched by the issue of people we know and love who have struggled with alcohol issues. We've certainly, in our family, you know, we have people who've had this problem. And it's a terrible affliction, it's a terrible disease. And we had somebody in the previous church we used to go to who, who suffered with this. And, and I remember once I was particularly upset that we couldn't seem to help him. And I spoke with a man, a, a Christian man, who'd, who himself was 40 years sober. And he ran a, an AA meeting and he said, look, you can't do anything until the person accepts that they have a problem. If they accept that they have a problem and they want to do something about it, then we can at least start to help. But if they don't accept they have a problem, there's nothing you can do. And so the first step for us as Christians in working out how we make sure that the spiritual side of our minds and our impulses is the the dominant one is to understand the problem. To understand, firstly, that we have to be accountable to God for our conduct. We should be ambassadors for Christ. We absolutely should not be the person who is rude to somebody we encounter in a store or elsewhere, even if we feel provoked. Jesus was asked, what are the two greatest commandments? What's the greatest commandment? He said, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Anybody you bump into. 
So if you get angry with somebody, you should be thinking, would I like somebody to shout at me? The answer is no. That should be governing the way we interact with everybody we come into contact with. Like I said, it's not easy. We need to understand the problem. We need to understand that we are called to a different value system, to a different level of conduct. We need to understand that's not going to be easy because we have these two warring minds, the sinful mind and the spiritual mind. Once we've accepted that basic problem, that basic challenge, then we can begin to work out how to address it to make sure that the spiritual side is more dominant. The second thing, once we've understood that there's a problem, the second thing is we need to understand how we are built. I've been reading a fascinating book recently. It's a book called Nudge, N-U-D-G-E. It was written in 2008, and the authors have just revised it and, and, and put out a new edition. And it's, they're psychologists, and they look at all of the different little impulses and factors that nudge us to make decisions. They've done a lot of work with governments around the world designing forms and online documents, and they write extensively about little psychological nudges or triggers or things that cause us to make decisions as we navigate our way through any given day. And what they say in there is that psychologists and neuroscientists have long accepted that each one of us have two systems in our brain that control our thought process and our decision-making. Some call it system one and system two. In the book Nudge, to make it easier for people like me, they call it the automatic system and the reflective system. And every one of us have an automatic system and a reflective system. That automatic system is kind of like the old... It's the ancient lizard part of our brain that's instinctive. The reflective system is one that takes a little bit of time to think about things, to think things through. The automatic system is a system that causes you to duck if somebody throws something. You'll find that you've ducked before you've even appreciated there's a threat. Because your automatic system is constantly looking, responding to short-term stimuli or input, and it sees something coming and you duck. Once you've ducked and the ball, if it's a ball, has shot past your face, the reflective part of your, your brain takes over and says, well, that was a close call. I wonder why that happened. How can we stop that happening in the future? Ah, oh, we're standing next to a park where some kids are playing baseball. We'll move 50 yards over here. So the two systems working together. The automatic system saved you from being injured or killed. The reflective system has moved away from the threat. Another example is later today when we drive back down to, to the desert. We're in the car for a couple of hours. We find the journey goes by like that if we put a podcast on. And that's interesting because when you listen to a podcast, it's engaging the reflective part of your brain and you're listening and appreciating the conversation. But the automatic system is taking care of the driving. Which really, if you think about it, is quite extraordinary. You can drive 100 miles without even thinking about it. I'm sure you've all had that experience. That the automatic part of your brain is dealing with the basic technicalities of driving. Another example is if 
You're flying on an aircraft and suddenly you hit some turbulence. I'm sure we've all had that moment. You hit that turbulence, there's a bang, the plane drops, and you panic. You have, you have, a, you have an immediate panic and fear. Because that's the reflexive, the automatic part of your brain saying, oh, we've got a problem, the plane's going to crash. But then the reflective part of our brain takes up and says, no, no. Thousands of planes fly every day without crashing. This was just a bit of turbulence, you'll be fine. Or in my personal case, the reflective part of the brain causes me to look at the stewardess. Because if she's relaxed, then that's fine. If she's looking scared, then possibly there's more to it. So we have these two systems that are constantly working. The reflective part of our brain is the part that we would use to write a shopping list or to plan a route. But what is interesting and how this ties in to what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 is that the reflective part of our brain can come up with a plan but the automatic part of our brain can derail that plan at any moment and any time. I'll give you an example of this if you want to test this for yourself. This evening, write a shopping list. Sit down and write a shopping list. And put on that shopping list all of the things you need from the grocery store. Now, the reflective part of your brain will look at what your plans are for next week, how many nights you're going to be out, how many nights you're going to be in, what you're going to eat... It'll look at the, it'll take inventory of what's in your fridge or your cupboard, and we need a few more of this, a bit more milk, blah, blah, blah. And your reflective part of your brain will write a list that will have on it the items that you need. When you've written the list, fold it up and put it in your pocket, go to bed. When you get up tomorrow, don't have any breakfast, don't have any lunch, go to the grocery store in the afternoon. I guarantee you'll come back with things not on that list. Because the worst thing you can do, as we all know, is to go grocery shopping when you're hungry. Because you're hungry, and everything you see in the grocery store looks wonderful, because you're so hungry. You'll go past the hot chicken and the aroma, oh, that goes in the, in the basket. You'll go past the potato chips, you'll go past the cream cakes. All kinds of things will get put in your cart Sorry, we say trolley in England. In your cart, because, of, because the automatic system of your brain is responding to a short-term stimulus. That's why you go to a store, you go to a TJ, you go to Marshalls, you go to a gas station, uh, any kind of store, even any one of the grocery stores, you'll find that right by the checkout counter, there's all kinds of enticing things put there because, because they know that you'll, you'll instinctively respond to something. You'll get it, you'll put it in your, in your cart, even though you didn't set out with the intention of buying it. So the problem is that that automatic system in our brain is capable at any given moment of derailing what the reflective part of our brain would have us do. There's examples of this in the Bible. King David... <coughs> walks on the roof of the palace to get some air. And he sees Bathsheba bathing. Now, there's no way that David had planned. Before he went on the roof, David had not planned to commit adultery and murder the husband of the man, of the woman he was going to commit adultery with. But that's what happened. Because he's on the roof, he sees her, 
And the old lizard part of his brain, that sinful nature, reacts. And before he knows what's happened, he's called for, he's found out who she is, she's come to his room, and we know what happens. We see it again with Elisha. Elisha is visited by the commander of the Syrian army, Naaman, who's sick with leprosy. He's been told that the man of God can heal him. And he comes to see Elisha, and Elisha heals him. And he's so thrilled with his healing that Naaman says to Elisha, look, I've got all of these wagon loads of jewels, of food, of oil, all of this. I want to give it to you to say thank you. All of this wealth, I want to give to you to say thank you. Elisha says, no, I don't want it. You take it back with you. And we read that Elisha's servant, Gehazi, who'd been his servant for a long time, who'd seen Elisha work, see the things that he did. He knew the principles by which Elisha lived his life. He secretly runs after Naaman. He says, wait up, wait up, wait up. We actually could do with a few bits and pieces. We've got some people coming to stay. So, And he gets some of, this, some of the goods and the money, and he goes and he hides it. He didn't wake up that morning, I don't think, thinking I'm going to steal But suddenly he was presented with this opportunity. Nobody was around. He could do this, take it, hide it. And that automatic part of his brain kicked him, kicked in and got him into such trouble. The good news is we are capable of doing things to stop or to neutralize that automatic part of our brain getting us into trouble. An example. I'm sure... Some or all of us have had that experience where we set our alarm clock to say 6 a.m. because we know we've got to get up, we've got things to do. The reflective part of our brain sets the alarm. When it goes off at 6 a.m., we're tired, the bed's so comfortable and warm and nice, and so the hand stretches out, hits the snooze button, and we go back to sleep, and we forget the alarm. Because in that moment... The reflective part of our brain is, re- is reacting to the, to the short-term comfort in the bed, and it overrides the decision to get up at six. But you can, if you know that's likely to happen, you can plan to neutralize it. Do you know you can buy an alarm clock today called Clocky? No lie, Clocky. Not the most inventive name, but look it up. It's on Amazon, <clears throat> and it's a big, chunky alarm clock and it has a big wheel on each end of it. And what happens, when you set your alarm, so when your reflective part of your brain is in charge and you set the alarm, you can choose how long you'll be permitted to snooze when you hit the snooze button. One minute, two minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. You set it when you set the clock. Next morning, 6 a.m. comes, the alarm goes off. You reach out, you bash the snooze button, go back to sleep. Soon as that allotted time has expired, the clocky rolls off your bedside table and charges around your bedroom, going under the bed, behind the cupboard, not waking up the cat. All the time, the alarm's going off, drives you crazy. So you, the only way you can shut it off is to get out of bed and chase it around the room, stubbing your toe, falling over, and then you'll switch it off. <clears throat> that is the perfect example of planning to neutralize the automatic part of the brain messing things up. I'm sorry, I've got five minutes, if you grant me another five minutes, I've been a little bit long. Another example of this, if you still don't believe me, nearly 3,000 years ago, 7-800 BC, Homer wrote an epic poem called The Odyssey about a character called Odysseus who went on this great journey 
One part of the journey was Odysseus and his men had to sail their ship past an island. And on this island, there were some women who had the most amazingly seductive singing voices. Not sure, Stephanie, if you'd have made the cut. Um, Stephanie is my wife, and I'll be in trouble later. But they, they had these seductive singing voices, and these singing voices were so seductive that people would steer their ship towards the island, and they'd crash on the rocks. Now, Odysseus had got to go past the island. So Odysseus understood in this poem he couldn't trust the automatic part of his brain to make the right decision when they went past the island because he would have heard the singing. So he instructed all of his crew members to put earwax, uh, to put earwax, to put wax in their ears to stop, stuff their ears up with wax so they couldn't hear the women sing. But he went a step further because he wanted to hear the singing just to see if it was all it was cracked up to be. But he didn't want the automatic part of his brain to override the, the rest of his crew. So he got, he, he got them to tie him to the mast. So they tied him tightly to the mast. So as they went past, he could hear the singing, but he couldn't influence the way the ship went. That's, that's nearly 3,000 years ago, somebody writing about the automatic part of our brain making instinctive decisions that can get us into trouble but if we plan ahead and we understand the problem and we understand our weaknesses, we can take steps to neutralize it, to stop the automatic system making decisions that the reflective part of our brain would not want to make. Last example. Recent, three, four months ago, I went for a checkup at the doctor. The doctor suggested it would be a good idea for me to lower my blood sugar levels. And the best way to do that was exercise and diet. So there was a list of things that I couldn't eat. Two of the things on the list were my favorite things. <clears throat> it's always the way. Ice cream and chips, potato chips, or as we call them in England, crisps. I love crisps. And the problem is that if I have a bag of crisps or chips in the cupboard, that is like the siren song of the women on the island. They call to me out of the cupboard, and they, they lure me into the cupboard. and, I, and, and and no matter, no matter what my intentions were that morning, I'm not going to eat a, a chip. I will get the bag. I'll eat the entire bag. So my wife and my wife's assistants, we've neutralized that. Understanding my weakness, understanding my inability to stop that automatic response, we now don't have any chips in the house. We have no chips. We have no ice cream. My daughter's here this morning. It's sad news for her. She likes chips. When she comes to the house, there won't be any. Because I can't trust myself not to eat them. How does that apply to us? We need to look at our weaknesses. <clears throat> look at the things that we know we are susceptible to. I don't know what you're susceptible to. You don't know what I'm susceptible to. But I know what might throw me off track spiritually. You know what might throw you off track spiritually. So don't go to places where you're likely to be influenced by things that are not going to be helpful. Solomon talked about this in, in, in Proverbs when he wrote to the, a letter, to, he's writing to the young man and saying, don't go past the house that the prostitute lives in. Go a different way because you can't trust yourself to make that right decision. We have to do everything we can to make sure that we don't put ourselves in situations where our automatic response is likely to take over and cause us to do something based on a short-term input that is not good for us spiritually. 
How do we do that? We do it by training. Athletes train. Athletes practice. They practice the same drills over and over and over because then they almost become automatic. We can do that as Christians. We can read our Bibles. Not just glance at them every now and then, but properly read them, get a study guide, join a Bible study group. There's a men's men's Bible study group in this church on a Wednesday morning. It's been going for 27 years. Some of the guys in that group have been in the group for 27 years. They've read the Bible so many times, but it's still fresh every Wednesday. And that's a good discipline because it keeps putting these teachings and principles deep down into into our brain and our consciousness. Prayer is another way of training uh, to to, to defeat those impulses. Constant prayer, getting up in the morning, committing the day to God. Before we go to bed at night, considering what's happened during the day. Have we done things today that upset God? Let's ask for forgiveness. Let's keep a short account. Every day before we go to bed, let's put things right. And lastly, let's give that reflective part of our brain, time to catch up. It's difficult, but in that moment when we're angry, we're upset, we want to lash out, we want to say something, we want to do something, we take a pause. If we take a pause, the reflective part of our brain will say, God wants us to live in accordance with his spirit. And he wouldn't want me to be angry or to say something hurtful. It gives time for the reflective part of our brain to catch up and neutralize that animal instinct. And you know, you can do this after the fact. If you've done something this week, you've said something to somebody that's offended them or hurt somebody, even if you felt justified at the time, you can put it right. You can call them up, say, hey, I'm sorry. We can allow that reflective part of our brain to catch up. It's why God says, be still and know that I am God. Take a time out, take a breath, let God through his Holy Spirit speak to us. The more that we can do that, then the more that we can train ourselves through coming to church, studying our Bible, praying, the more we will be able to make that spiritual side in us more dominant and to shrivel up that sinful nature that would cause us to live in a way God doesn't want. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much because you love us so much. Help each one of us, Lord, as we go through today, tomorrow, the rest of this week. Lord, help us to do everything we can to understand that we need, Lord, to make decisions based on what the spiritual part of our mind is telling us, Lord, and to seek to stop that sinful nature from rearing up, Lord, and making decisions that take us away from you. Because the more, Lord, we can let the spiritual, your Holy Spirit dominate, the more you'll bless us and guide us and deliver us and show us things we could never have imagined. In your precious and worthy name.